Hi, I'm N. And I'm Matt. And we are here to invite you to listen to our true crime podcast. That's right. It's called Ripped from the Headlines, and it's a fact and fiction podcast that recaps Law and Order episodes and deep dives into the true crimes that inspired the show. Each week, we both watch an episode of Law and Order, and then one of us takes you on a hilarious journey back to the early 90s to recap, review, and absolutely eviscerate the absurdity of the episode. Get ready for butterfly clips galore. Get ready for more frosted eyeshadow than you can handle. (laughs) Slap bracelets, we got it all. The other one of us researches the true crime that inspires the episode and talks through the various problematic ways in which victims, survivors, and the criminal justice system in general are depicted in the actual cases and on TV. We talk with care about how individuals in marginalized communities are represented in media and experience real-world injustice, while finding any opportunity to tie in queer, comedic, and pop culture references to balance out the absolute horror show that is our reality. So join us every week for a chance to catch up with N, who's dedicated their academic career to studying inequality and matt who has spent much of his career studying human nature at customer service and barista jobs and knows true crime tv like the back of his hand (laughs) you better believe i do i watch tv like it's my job and true crime tv is my passion well guess what we have a podcast and now it is your job (laughs) finally you can find rip from the headlines anywhere you listen to podcasts or check out our website at rippedheadlinespod.com for episodes and lots of other fun and exclusive content Season two is out now, so please tune in every Thursday to Ripped from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. Until then, stay out of the headlines. Goodbye. Bye. Oh. Now you can say it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back, creeps. This is Dulce. And this is Adam. I actually think we do a really bad job of introducing (laughs) Um, That's okay. We do our best. I do my best anyway. Yeah. I so can't yeah, speak it, for you. <laughs> if you don't know who we are, we are Adam and Dulce, the hosts of Weekly Creep. I'm Dulce. He's Adam. Yeah, just just to clarify that. And yeah. Now we're going to tell you a story. Wait, do we have any announcements this week? No. I don't think so either. But uh, I'm just going to throw it out there again. If you want to check out lawlesseyewear.com for some ball and ass glasses use the discount code creep all capital letters and you'll get 15% off yes now tell me a story they'll say okay so my sources are Brett Swanson from Mysterious Universe and Haunted New Orleans I was thinking of uh, Ron Swanson Ron Swanson never mind (laughs) alright so today I'm going to be talking about the Grunch, a.k.a. the Vampire of Farborg, Marigny, the Demon of Downman Road, or just the Grunch. The Grunch. Yeah. Okay. So it's said to look like a person or an ape mixed with reptilian features with glowy eyes, a goat head, hooved feet, huge fangs, claws, and very aggressive. Okay. It sounds aggressive. It also has a distinct stench that follows it, and people who have encountered it have reported hearing it howl or wail. Height is usually ballparked at four feet tall, and sometimes having black leather skin with scales. I was expecting something much taller, to be honest. Mm -mm. Reports of this creature dates back to the 1700s when New Orleans was still La Nouvelle Orleans. New settlers were coming in, 
and talking about seeing a weird monster living in the swamp after the U.S. purchased Louisiana from the French in 1803. According to some, there was a road that led to a secluded forest where no one dared enter. The reason was because of who lived in that part of the wilderness. This area was inhabited by society's outcast, like little people, albino people, and people with visible, quote, deformities. Oh. This group never left the confines of their community, which led to inbreeding, and that's how the Grinch came to be. So that's one origin story. Okay. The road that led to this settlement was named Grunch Road. Jesus, that's awful. Yeah. Another origin story is that the monster was a byproduct of another monster called the Devil Baby. That's not very um, original. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a reason why it's called the Devil the Baby. The Devil Baby, okay. Voodoo priestess Marie Laveau is said to have created it when she castrated the, ba- the Devil Baby as soon as he was born to prevent him from making more of his kind. The testicles themselves morphed into a male and female grunge monster who attacked Laveau, almost killing her. Laveau was able to fend them off and the pair escaped into the wilderness. Wow, that's a, that's a story. Yeah. Another origin story is that the group that I was mentioning before, the ones that were outcasts, yeah. or just being different, tried to summon a demon to do their bidding. Other stories, it says oh, they're just demon worshippers or whatever, tried mm-hmm. to summon a demon. Either way, someone summoned this demon and it ran away from them. And the story where the outcast summoned the demon, it said that they summoned him for protection because, oh, okay. you know, they were yeah, targets, basically. Other people. Exactly. The normies, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and these stories, the demon can turn others into the grunge if they were bitten, kind of like a werewolf. This creature was blamed for missing livestock or family pets. And they were also blamed for whenever like the communities would find dead animals, just dead. Um, did I ever say that? Dead animals found dead. <laughs> yeah. If they had a single hole found in the throat. Oh, okay. And exsanguinated. Drained of blood. Basically. People who go missing have also been said to have been taken by the grunch the way the grunch hunts is they stalk their prey in tall grass then they pounce on the prey and drag them into the swamp which is where it's said that they live in the swamps there's a report that i got from mysterious universe that's actually a first-hand account of someone who claims to have seen the grunch after hurricane katrina had passed oh well like right after it wasn't that long ago so, like, I don't know if you know if you caught that, but like, the the carcasses are exsanguinated with a sing- singular hole in their throat. Yeah, a lot of people think that this monster is like a mixture of a chupacabra and another kind of cryptid. Oh, okay. Because that's how the chupacabra yeah, yeah. kills as well or eats. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so this witness was traveling in her car in a low traffic road. And saw what she thought was a dog on the side of the road. But then quickly saw it couldn't be a dog as she drove closer to it. And this is what uh, she said. This thing looked like some sort of lizard-like cross between monkey and bulldog. It was horrible. It was shuffling 
along with a lopsided gait and seemed to be so unnatural that I could feel the hairs on my neck stand up. It had grayish scaly skin and a snouted face that looked to be a cross between that of an ape and an alligator. It's really hard to describe. As I approached it, it stopped and puffed up to stand on two legs at a height of about five feet, looking at me with those baleful eyes. And then it emitted the most unpleasant hiss I could imagine, after which it sort of lunged at me as I passed. Let me tell you, I was well on my way after that, and I have never seen anything like it since. That sounds insane. Yeah. Which kind of lines up with a lot of other witnesses around this time where the grunge actually, like uh, when people have encountered this kind of cryptid, these things start attacking cars. Like if it, if one passes, like if you pass by one, it'll go for the car. It'll like, go for the fucking car. That's nuts. And it, <laughs> why didn't they name it something better than the grunge? I don't know why. <laughs> Um, sightings are more frequent around this time, possibly because of the storm disrupting their natural habitat. The locations of sightings varied from Highway 90 to more secluded areas. These creatures were also uh, attacking family pets. These sightings got so common that people stopped leaving their pets outside for fear of the grunge getting them. What's crazy to me is that this is recent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like, it's very well alive in people's heads right now. No, that's nuts. I, I, yeah. I guess for people living by swamps, not like in the city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One witness said that he saw a grunge feeding off of a dog and leaving an exsanguinated carcass behind. Some have also seen this cryptid rummaging through people's garbage cans, which could mean that they can use their claws or hands or whatever, like a raccoon ham. You know, like... Yeah, yeah. Like um, they have like motor skills. Full, dex full dexterity. Correct. That's what I was looking for. So I'm pretty sure you guys want to discuss the elephant in the room. Who the hell is this, de this devil baby? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm taking this directly from this site. Because it is so well written. And I swear it felt like I was reading a novella. Okay. I was enraptured. But yeah. it's like a folk story or an urban legend? Yeah. It's so... Apparently the, the legend is so popular that they have tours where they're just... Like, here's where the devil baby used to live. Oh, okay. Tours. And shit. Like, this, if you stand here, this is where you can hear the devil baby. <laughs> yeah. This shit. Like, so fucking crazy. Okay. All right. Hold on to your panties, guys. This is this is a good one. And this is where I got I got it from uh hauntedneworleanstours.com. Whoever fucking wrote this needs to be a writer. <laughs> like you don't need to be doing tours. So, in the early days of Marie Laveau's rise to fame, her clientele consisted mainly of country folk and other free people of color whose long association with the practices of Wadusi and root workers made her a natural attraction to them. But at the height of her power, when her mystique was talked about constantly in the salons of the rich Creoles and white-bred Americans, Marie Laveau began to receive visits from the upper crust of society, 
and it was her service to this sector that embroiled her in one of the greatest legends of old New Orleans, the Devil Baby of Bourbon Street. Laveau was often called to the ornate mansion on Dauphine Street to delight and amuse the doyen of the famous Creole family who lived there, and all her idle and very wealthy friends. The voodoo queen had been referred to the ladies by a woman of the highest social standing in the city, none other than Madame Delphine Lalaurie. Yeah. If you don't know her, get to know her. I don't know what that noise I just made was. It just went, <laughs> <laughs> the family was a well-known old line New Orleans family who had risen in prominent, to prominence through their dealings with the wealthy Americans who lived on the uptown side of Canal Street. The Creole family of Dauphine Street had a beautiful daughter named Camille, and according to legend, when Camille came of age, she had many suitors. To her great disappointment, however, all of them were Creole. To most young women of her station, this would have been a fabulous dilemma, but for Camille, it was truly disheartening. All her life, she had been envious of the wealth and station of the Americans of their fabulous homes built in the northern style and of their immutable business dealings all of which ended in profit that the americans did not hesitate to flaunt yes americans are very gaudy like that <laughs> in her few visits to the american quarter camille befriended the daughter of an american family josephine brody who had often invited camille to her family for tea and other activities it was one of these outings that Camille, it is said, met the man who would change her life forever and gain her a place in haunted New Orleans history. Mackenzie Bowes was a Scotsman by birth, though his history and how he obtained his considerable fortune were obscure. He never made such comment on it and the shallow Americans in whose circles he moved with such ease were satisfied to know that he was obscenely wealthy and that the money was very old, coming down from old Scottish lords and some very lucrative family connections. He had arrived upon the steps of the Brody home in the company of August Brody, the eldest son, whom he had accompanied from New York. He was looking for a place to settle down, the Brodies were told, and New Orleans seemed just a place for a man like Mackenzie Bowes. From the moment she laid eyes on the dark, handsome Scotsman, Camille was smitten, and she began to look for every opportunity to spend more and more time with the Brodies and their Scottish house guest. It greatly pleased Josephine and her family when Bowes began to return Camille's interest with an immediate attentiveness and devotion. Camille's parents, who also became regular house guests of the American Brodies, encouraged the romance, hoping for a fine union for their daughter. But not all were so delighted. In scorning her Creole suitors, Camille had mostly embarrassed them and wounded their pride. <sighs> Small men. Yep. Nearly all turned their attentions to other sultry Creole daughters. Nearly all, that is, except Etienne Lafossa Mathieu. Um, okay. It did not please him at all that he had been set aside by Camille like a plaything that had outlasted her attention. 
As Camille's romance and her stature among the Americans grew, it was clear to all, including Etienne, their marriage was imminent. When Bose threw off his Presbyterian faith and converted to Catholicism, marriage was certain, and shortly after the bans were announced in St. Louis Cathedral. All this while Marie Laveau had watched with interest, and she was not surprised in the least when Matthieu came to her cottage at, on St. Anne, imploring her aid. Again, Matthieu is this Etienne guy. Yep. He wanted Camille back, he said so at first, but when the voodoo queen shook her head and assured him that it could not be so, then Etienne ground his fist into the table and pronounced, then I want her dead. That's reasonable. Totally reasonable. <sighs> what a fucking ass. <laughs> to his surprise, Madame Laveau laughed at his request. You cannot know what you ask, boy. She said in her heavy Creole French. I'm not going to imitate that. <laughs> <laughs> you, will pay, you will pay dearly for me to take her life. Are you ready for this? Etienne thought it through as quickly as his fevered mind could. Then make her suffer like she has made me suffer. She goes to the Americans to make a spectacle of herself. Make a spectacle of her for all to see. Marie Laveau spat on the ground and stamped the spot with her feet. So let it be, she said. Then set about instructing Etienne on all the things she would need to make a fetish and to effect a good curse. Bring these to me within a week, she told him, and be patient after that. You will see the Scotsman ruined and Camille suffer as you have asked. Now go. On a bright October morning, Camille became the bride of the dark, mysterious Scotsman in the halls of the great St. Louis Cathedral. All of the high society of New Orleans from both quarters attended the fabulous wedding and the celebration at the family home afterward. In the dark of her cupboard on St. Anne Street, Marie Laveau worked her charm. It would be months in coming, but Etienne would have his revenge and would regret the day he asked for it. When Camille and Mackenzie returned from their wedding trip, the new bride was already pregnant. Beaming with delight, the handsome couple settled down in a town home on the Rue Bourbon, not far from the French market. While her husband went about his affairs in the day, Camille spent hours planning the nursery that would receive her child. Nothing could dim her enthusiasm or quail her excitement. Except on one occasion, when she happened upon Etienne in the market. His scowl was so dark and intense that Camille thought she would faint, and her mother, who was with her, called for the carriage to take her home. Soon, however, the shadow passed, or it seemed. Camille's mother, Adelaide, began to become restless in her sleep. Never one to be plagued by sleeplessness or dreams, she began to have vivid nightmares that would wake her in the middle of the night. Afterwards, she would be so unnerved that she found it impossible to go back to sleep. She tried desperately to keep her troubles from Camille, not wanting to intrude upon the young woman's joy, but one day the daughter confronted her. When Adelaide told Camille about her dreams and fitful sleep, the young mother-to-be was disturbed. My husband is having dreams as well, she told her mother. He wakes suddenly in the night calling for me. 
but he will not tell me what he has dreamed or why he cannot sleep again. This greatly troubled Adelaide, and when she departed from Camille, she spied a beautiful mulatress selling fish beside the road, and this immediately put her mind on Madame Lovo. As soon as she arrived home, Adelaide sent out a servant with a message for Marie Laveau. Within half an hour, the servant returned and announced that Madame Laveau was waiting to be admitted. Adelaide went to the door herself and quickly brought Marie into the house. For what seemed like an eternity, the two were closed off together in the Creole parlor while Adelaide poured out her concerns and told Marie every detail of her troubling dreams. When she added that Camille's husband was having nightmares too, a glimmer passed Marie's dark eyes. I believe the child to be in the greatest danger, Madame Laveau finally pronounced. This is what the ancestors are telling me. When Camille is confined and the time of her delivery comes, I alone should be called to midwife her. Otherwise, I fear there will be a great evil laid upon this child. The problem is with the husband, you know. Dun, dun, dun. Whoa. I'm sorry. I'm too engrossed in this to even comment. Right you now. see what I mean? Like, yeah, I was reading this. I was like, there's no way in hell I'm going to, like, chop this up I'm and paraphrase, paraphrase this shit. Yeah, shit. No, no, like, there's that. no way. There's no way. Fuck <laughs> that. I'm sharing this with the world. <laughs> <laughs> this troubled Adelaide greatly, and she could not understand the meaning of it. But assured by the voodoo queen that all would be well, so long as she alone might bring the baby, Adelaide put aside her fears. She watched as her carriage clattered away down the cobblestone streets of New Orleans, taking the mighty Madame Laveau home to await the call. Mackenzie Bowes was always a dark and mysterious man, and much about his past he kept to himself. The most that Camille had been able to wrest from him was his connection to a family of Scottish lords called Strathmore. She learned that he was in line to inherit a title, and possibly a castle, but several male heirs before me would have to meet untimely ends, he said, with a wink. So they would not be lord and lady of anything, thought Camille, but still, the idea of her child sharing in this noble bloodline was almost intoxicating. Camille went to great expense in making the nursery a fitting place to receive such a child, and this to the great consternation of her husband, who it seemed wanted to distance himself from his Scottish past. One day, while looking through a gazetteer, Camille came across a story about the Earls of Strathmore and the gloomy Scottish castle they called home. It was a cursed place, or so the article said, and had been associated for ages with the darkest form of malign arts. Glamis, it read, is purported to have locked within its walls the devil himself. This disturbed Camille somewhat, for combined with the dreams and fitfulness of her husband and mother, this seemed to her an omen of some sort. She began to wonder, but soon all thoughts would turn to her delivery. Her first labor pains began, and she entered her confinement. Dutifully, Adelaide sent for Marie Laveau. Camille's labor was long and arduous, but the patient Marie did not once leave her side. She would soothe her through her pains and pat her head with a cool towel. 
Sometimes she would talk in a sing-song using the strange French patois of the island Criolla, and it seemed that Camille's pangs were having a strange effect on Mackenzie as well. For as the pains increased and the delivery neared, Mackenzie became more and more agitated and nervous. He insisted upon being in the room, but Marie Laveau was not one to be bullied, and no sooner did he step inside than he was put out again. The Scotsman fidgeted as the time neared and would not be comforted. At last, unable to bear it, his mind seemed to completely collapse, and he ran from the home into the dark night. Camille suffered greatly from the labor and mercifully passed into unconsciousness before death came for her. Her grieving family was inconsolable when Madame Laveau told them that Camille could not be saved, but that the child had survived. Now the voodoo queen looked at them and told them to be prepared. There is a curse upon this child and it has nothing to do with your poor girl, she said. This is the work of years of malice and someone who hated this child enough to bring the devil out of hell to curse it. When Marie Laveau revealed to the family the bundle laying in her arms, all present gasped in horror, including the family priest, who had arrived in time to perform the last rites over Camille's stif stiffening body. In the arms of the voodoo woman was not a plump and blushing human baby, but a grotesque and lurid imitation, a horror, a curse. Wails filled the room when the thing was exposed, and all could see that where light tufts of hair should be were two lumps, the early roots of horns to come. Where little hands and feet should have been, there were claws of some wild animal, like a possum or a raccoon. There were scales upon its body, though its genitals were perfectly formed, and all could see it was a boy. But it was the eyes, the horrible, leering, hell-like eyes that caused Adelaide to faint in despair and Camille's poor father to turn his back. Take it, he said to Marie. But Monsieur, said the wily Vaducey, what of his father? Its father has thankfully gone mad. He was taken in by the Ursulines just a minute ago, ranting and foaming at the mouth. <laughs> he is quite beyond our help, came the heartless reply. This is the curse of his family, not ours. As you wish, said Marie Laveau. Real, real chill, as you wish. <laughs> as she bundled the little infant to her, a barely perceptible smile crossed her full lips as she passed out into the humid New Orleans night and made her way towards St. Anne Street. But suddenly out of the shadows came the hunching form of Etienne Mathieu. Marie Laveau stopped suddenly, but was not moved by the sight she saw. Etienne's own curse had come home to roost, and he was hideously deformed. Where once a handsome Creole man had been, there was now only the bent and broken form of a cripple. Wow. His face was so contorted that Marie knew 
no one save she alone could stand to look upon it. What have you done to me? Etienne cried and lunged for Marie Laveau. The voodoo queen held up a hand. Stop, she said in a commanding voice. You are marked for all to see, Etienne, for Camille has died because of your hatred. Now you may be a testament to her life. Go away and do not show your face to me again. It offends me. With that, Marie Laveau passed into the night and Etienne passed into obscurity. I'm going to use that from now on. Go face. away. Your face offends me. <laughs> <laughs> a thought came to the voodoo queen and she turned quickly on her heel, making her way to Royal Street and the familiar doorway of another infamous woman, Madame Lalaurie. After the servants had let her inside, Marie was greeted in the crimson parlor of the fabulous Lalaurie home. When Marie had told her tale and shown the baby to Madame Lalaurie, the parlor rang with her laughter at what fools humans are to tamper with the will of the gods. But he must be baptized, Madame said. I know a priest who will do it right away, and I will stand for this child. It needs a godmother after all. It's said that Marie Laveau and Madame Lalaurie shared the care of the unwanted child between them. Sometimes the child would be kept with Marie at her home on St. Anne. Other times, Madame played host to it. And it is said she even had a nursery made for it on the second floor of her home. Servants and slaves who caught glimpses of the baby began to whisper tales back and forth. When any came to the ears of either woman, the reaction was brutal and quick. Most of the gossip said that Marie and Madame used the baby to call to its true father, the devil himself. But no one had any proof, and no one wanted to get close enough for it. When Madame Lalaurie was chased from New Orleans after a fire in her home led to the discovery of horribly mutilated, tortured, and dead slaves, the care of the devil baby fell to Marie a duty she is said to have shared with her eldest children. For a few years, the fact that such a monstrous being was kept in the heart of the French Quarter was a subject of continuous gossip. The pitiful and chilling wails were not of this earth, and whenever the rain would fall, it seemed the baby would moan and howl incessantly to the great disturbance of the French Quarter residents. One rainy day, however, there were no howls. And shortly afterwards, the Laveau family was seen all dressed in black, gathered in St. Louis Cemetery Number 1, where they were laying someone or something to rest. Could it have been the devil baby? Most people assume this to be the case. Bum, bum, yeah. Whoa. That's my story. Fucking hell. <laughs> it was nice to do something a little different. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to have to cover Madame. I say LaLaurie. You say LaLaurie. Yeah. But either way, we'll have to cover her in the future because fuck me, that's an interesting story. I don't want to. <laughs> I won't. If you want to, go ahead. Bro. Yeah, I, I don't mind do it. doing it. Um, I don't want to do it. There's, there's topics. 
It's a horrendous story. What I would like to do is actually get um, like do it from a book and try and learn about it properly and see what's yeah what's hearsay and what's fo- um, what's a uh, fact. Yeah. But fucking hell, that was some story. Yeah, right. With the devil, baby. Yeah. So you got a two for one there. Oh yeah, the grunge and the devil, baby. Yeah. Fucking hell. Right on. Well done. And well done to the person who wrote that. What? That was off. That was website? on a tour site. NewOrleansTours.com? HauntedNewOrleansTours.com. HauntedNewOrleansTours.com. I feel like I've used that website myself for research before. And I'm almost sure that that is one of the websites that we use when we actually went to New Orleans to do our haunted tours. Yeah. All right. Right on. Right on. Well, my story this week is coincidentally enough actually another episode of unsolved mysteries Mm. yeah and i didn't do this intentionally because last week's story like unsolved mysteries was one of my sources too but this time i was researching a different story and came across this and i read a little bit about it and i was like okay it sounds kind of funny and then i found out it was an episode of unsolved mysteries and i watched it i was like okay let me find out a little bit more and then it turns out that was all the information was just that episode of Unsolved Mystery. Like mm. I went through like six or seven different places trying to find any difference. But like basically all these websites had just kind of written out exactly what happened on this episode. Oh, OK. Yeah. With like almost the exact same wording. Yeah. So but it's a good story and I want to tell it. Tell it to me. So. To my face. It's known as the Tallman Haunting. As in Tallman, yeah, which is the people, the family's name, or also the haunted bunk beds. What the fuck? Yeah, they're different. Yeah. So, in April 1986, Alan and Debbie Tallman moved into their dream house, their forever home in Horicon, Wisconsin. Horicon. They were good, God-fearing people. Alan was a supervisor at a factory, and Debbie was a stay-at-home mom. And they were happy in their new home. Everything was coming up Tallman. What the fuck? <laughs> In early February the next year, they went shopping and bought some secondhand bunk beds for the kids. Mm. Which, if anybody does go and watch the Unsolved Mysteries episode, the guy was like really weird. It was like, Alan and Debbie Tallman go shopping and buy secondhand bunked beds. <laughs> are they are they bunked no, bu- beds no no no. they're just bunk beds but oh. he was like bunk beds oh, every okay. time he said it and i was like why is he saying it's so weird it's like he had never heard the term before oh okay i thought it was funny anyway another weird thing is um when they got them home they put them in the basement and built them okay because they were like getting the bedrooms ready upstairs but they built them in the basement now they're staying in the basement. Yeah, so they were storing them down there. like, And I can only imagine they had to take them back apart to mm. bring them back upstairs and put them in the kids' room. But anyway, that's whatever. So did they stay in the basement? No, no, no. They were just storing them there for a few weeks while they were getting the bedrooms ready. Oh. I just thought it was strange that anybody would do that. That's true. Because now they have to either pull it apart or carry a these tall-ass fucking yeah. bunk beds to hopefully their one-story house. <laughs> it is a one-story house, but <laughs> I don't know. I just got caught up on that because I was like, why? Why would they do it? Anyway. I don't know. Look, 
That's what they did. Look, why why do people not wear masks? You feel me? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, <laughs> from the moment they brought the bunk beds, the bunk beds home, it seemed that the kids just started to get sick. Hmm. Now, Debbie said that they had never like been sick, really, like, you know, as far as kids go. Oh, and these are secondhand? Secondhand beds, yeah. Uh, dicey. But literally, as soon as they came into the house, the kids started getting sick. Like to the point where she was bringing one of them to the doctor's office at least once a week. Mm. Sometimes she had all three of them, like at different doctor's appointments all throughout oh. the week. That's got to be stressful. Yeah. So by May, all the redecorating had been finished and they were ready to move the beds up into the two younger kids' rooms. Mm. So there's the oldest boy and then two younger girls. They had all been rearranged and were getting settled. And the eldest fella had acquired his mom and dad's old clock radio, which, let's face it, that, that was a big deal. Yeah. Being able to listen to the radio at night and shit, how cool. Yeah. The night they moved the beds into the younger kid's room, which was next to the older kid, the clock radio like just starts turning on and scrolling through the frequencies all on its own. That's weird. Like he actually sees the dial moving like because it's an old fashioned yeah, thing. It's, it's not, not just, just a digital. Yeah. yeah. So he runs outside and he tells his parents and obviously they don't fucking believe him. And they just think he's freaking himself out. And they're mm-hmm. like, if you're not going to act properly, we're going to take the radio off you. Yeah. So poor kid just goes back to bed, I guess. We're going to cause you childhood traumas. Yeah. You will never be able to look at a radio again. (laughs) (laughs) And you will think it's your fault. (laughs) And have all sorts of weird sex. Radio sex. (laughs) Um, The next thing to happen was when Alan is in the basement. One day, like shortly after this. Uh He's down there painting. And uh, Debbie calls him up to go for his lunch or whatever. That's nice. Yeah, I know. How nice. So he puts the brush down, like very mindfully oh. puts the brush <laughs> down on like the pan on the side. Yeah, so it doesn't drip. So, yeah, so it doesn't drip or get messy. When he comes back down, he finds the brush in the bucket of paint, handle first. Oh, uh, what? <laughs> yeah, what a No dick one move. does that. What a dick move. Yeah, it is. So now his fucking whole paintbrush is just covered in Lame. paint. And I'm sure there was probably other stuff, you know, going on at this time. Yeah. That they were just sort of like explaining away. But I think this was the first time that Alan actually registered something a bit odd. Yeah, because he's like, I would not fucking do that. Yeah, but he was still like in denial. I say this, but at the same time, this is the same couple who built their bunk beds in the basement. Yeah, and then probably had to take them apart to bring them upstairs. I don't fucking know. Okay, so let's not rule anything out at this point. I'll also say in the episode of Unsolved Mysteries, the representative bunk beds, like the reconstruction versions, look horrible like they look like they got a bunch of pallets from the back of a supermarket and like smashed them together to make a bunk bed yeah they were like what 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 can we do to make these bunk beds look secondhand oh yeah make (laughs) not like vaguely representative things yeah they look like like, bunk beds yeah they looked like shipping crates or something i don't fucking know (laughs) awful replicas (laughs) so the daughter had started being woken up in her bed at night the bunk bed And told her mom that there was a witch with red eyes behind the door that would wake her. And she kept talking about a fire in her bedroom. Mm. Now, again, I think they were both still just thinking, oh, you know, kids with their imaginations and dreams. Ours have been stamped out by now, but they're still full of them. By then, (laughs) 
a month later, oh, but then a month later, the oldest kid sees this old lady standing by his door, glowing like as if she was on fire. Oh. Like the whole figure. As far as I can gather, it was like a black shadow figure, but glowing around the edges. Okay. As, as if it was a piece of coal itself. Like Yeah, that makes sense. Debbie had never mentioned the witch that the daughter had told her about, so this kind of sealed the deal for her. In her own words, she said, At this point, I began to think our house was probably haunted. <laughs> <laughs> Very nonchalant. Yeah. Being good religious churchy folk, they called their pastor Wayne Dobratz, who diagnosed this as a demonic infestation straight away. Oh, wow. Yeah, straight up. I'm surprised. It seems to be that immediately after the pastor paid them a visit that the activity just ramped up. They started hearing doors slamming shut, strange voices calling their names, and the kids continued to see strange things. Mm. Then one night around Christmas time, the son saw something that just scared him so bad that he didn't want to stay in the house anymore. I can only assume it was the glowing witch lady again mm -hmm. or something even worse. Oh, he, like we don't know? We don't know, yeah. Uh, it was pretty, yeah, like cliffhanger right there. Yeah. But whatever it was, the kid, I think he was around like 10 or 12. He was like, we need to leave this house. Like, let's move. He was like, I don't care if you come, but I'm leaving. Yeah. Um, <laughs> with that, Alan loses his shit altogether. Remember, like this has been going on for like six months now. This is Alan, the paintbrush man. Yeah, the dad. And he starts shouting and roaring at the ghost, all Zach Baggins style. Oh, yeah. Like, Come, Come at out. me, ghost. We've got to antagonize it. <laughs> yeah. He says, if you want to scare someone, scare me. He actually wanted to fight the ghost. Oh, that's good. He even said at one point, um, like, I, I, he was genuinely terrified. He said, I had visions of coming home from work and actually seeing my family destroyed. Brutally murdered or just laying there dead. So I think like because the fair enough, the episode of Unsolved Mysteries is from like 1988 or something. Mm. But it they were kind of brushing it off as ooh spooky, but not really focusing on it. And I do think that the family were like really badly traumatized by all that. Right. A couple of weeks later, Alan comes home and hears some sort of weird howling noise. Mm-hmm. So he pulls up and he's like in the driveway and he hears this sound like wind blowing. Really fucking just creepy and eerie. But as he's listening, he's like, where is this coming from? And eventually the noise forms into words. And he hears, come here. Jesus. Right. So it keeps going and he like follows it around the side of the house. And when he gets to the back of the house, it's just gone. So he's like, what the fuck is that? And he goes back out to the front mm -hmm. and he starts hearing it again. This time it's kind of coming from the garage. And so it draws his attention to the garage door and he looks and yeah. the whole thing is engulfed in fire. What the, f like real fire? Or like legit fire. The whole garage is on fire. It's like bursting out the door. So he runs inside, puts his lunchbox on the floor, you know, make sure his lunchbox is safe. And he kind of stands there in shock for a second. And then I think he grabs a fire extinguisher and runs back out. When he gets back outside, he finds that the garage is completely intact with no sign of fire whatsoever. That was my question. Like, was it? Yeah. Okay. 
So no smell of smoke, no nothing. It was just an illusion that they he wanted them to see. It yeah, whatever it was, he was just trying to scare him. Yeah. So he goes back inside. What a dick. Yeah, absolutely. Could have ruined the man's lunch. <laughs> so he goes back inside, still freaked out, and he grabs his lunchbox off the floor. Mm-hmm. When he picks up the lunchbox, it's something. Empty. Well, yeah, this was the end of the day. Oh, okay. But when he picks up his lunchbox, something just grabs it out of his hand and fucks it across the room. See, I knew it. I knew it. I called it. Had something to do with the fucking lunchbox. Yeah. Debbie said that he was so freaked out and full of adrenaline that he was literally running around the house, like from room to room. Like, he was just so worked up. He didn't even know where to start. That's so crazy to me. And he came in, he like threw his keys on the dresser and shit like that and then ran back out of the room, like just freaking Man. out. Yeah. She must have been spooked too to see her husband like that. Yeah, that's exactly like what I'm getting. So Alan really believes like what's going on at this point. Like he's not trying to explain it away or anything. He's convinced. And he starts sleeping on the floor of the girls' room to keep an eye on them and to help them get to sleep. Poor dad. So one night, I don't know how long he's been doing this for, Mm -hmm. but one night he's lying on the floor trying to get to sleep, and Mm -hmm. he sees this fog materializing out of the ground, and he heard a voice come out of the fog just saying, you're dead. Damn. Simply just that. That's so crazy. When he came out of the bedroom, because I think it scared him out of the fucking bedroom. Oh, yeah. Debbie said that he was completely pale. He had tears running down his face, and he just refused to speak. Damn, dude. Yeah, so I don't, like... Again, I know, like, oh, typical, oh, he's the big man, like, he's the dad of the house or the man of the house or whatever. He's fucking scared. Yeah, obviously, and I would be too, like, I'd be shitting myself, but I wonder, like, how much fear this random patch of fog in the bedroom could invoke, you know? Like, I feel like I would be a lot less scared, or a lot more scared, if I saw the figure of the fucking burning witch, compared to just hearing a whisper out of some fog. Yeah, I think it might just be like the how fucking random and yeah, like how, I get maybe. how illogical all of this is. Like, how is fog forming indoors? It's almost like, you know what I think it is? I think it's his brain firing off, trying to comprehend how this is happening in real life right now. Yeah. Where he's like scared, confused, doesn't know how to fucking act, shocked. His brain just like he doesn't know how to process what he's feeling. Yeah, he it's just like this like. tornado, like this thunderstorm of misfires everywhere inside of him. Yeah, yeah. It's like this is not real life. Yeah. But it actually reminded me of um that other case that we covered a while back. I cannot think of the name. Um but it was like a demonic murder case. One of the first, I think it was the first case that somebody actually used the demonic plea of insanity in court. Mm. But like just randomly one night in that story, the couple just saw like a hand materializing out of the ground, like a green fucking hand. Mm-hmm. Either way, it reminded me of that. Yeah. Like just how fucking random it was. Anyway, Debbie sees him and is like trying to get, an answer out of him and he's just not speaking at all so she goes she gets straight on the phone and calls the pastor mm-hmm. and he comes over 
So I'm guessing it's not too late. Like it's probably around 10 or 11 o'clock, you know? Yeah. By the time the pastor gets there, Alan is still visibly shaking. And surprisingly enough, the pastor said that he's dealt with very similar cases before and believed everything Alan and Debbie told him. Dude, that's got to be like a fucking, like a comfort. Yeah. Hearing that. I guess, yeah. Even yeah. if it's small. So he just basically, he didn't question him. He was like, no, you're right. It's demonic. I believe you. Yeah. That's what you want to hear, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Rather than you're a fucking lunatic. Let's run more tests. Yeah. I'm going to have a pastor here spend the night and verify that it is. And we're going to take months and months to try to even get an exorcism or some shit. Yeah. So a few days go by after this and Alan has to work late. He works at a factory, like a local factory. And so he asks his relative. I don't know what relation he is. We just know that he's a dude, even like as Alan and Debbie, because they were interviewed in that show, uh-huh. even as they're talking, they're like, so our relative came over. And <laughs> it's just really awkward. That's strange. Yeah. But anyway, we just know that he's a dude and he's a relative and he's a relative. And Alan asked him to come over and sleep on the floor with the girls. OK. While he's at work. OK. This guy is a complete and utter skeptic. So he agrees to stay in the room, just like Alan would. All is going fine until he sees the same dark figure that had appeared to the kids. Being the total skeptic that he is, he screams and runs out of the room, abandoning the kids. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you were going to tell me like he got up and tried to have a conversation with it. Yeah, no. No? Okay. (laughs) So I was like... Good job. You left the kids alone. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> Debbie was all like, where's my baby? And he's all like back in the bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> so she makes him go in he's and like, grab the oh, kid. oh shit, right, kids. Yeah, yeah. But Debbie actually tells him to go back in there and grab the kid. And I think one of the girls was still a baby, baby. Like, Yeah. So he grabs the kid and she immediately starts packing her shit up. She's like, that's it. I've had enough. We're getting the fuck out of here. Yeah. That was the last straw. She left and they never spent another night in that house. Good for them. Yeah. They had the bunk beds destroyed two weeks later. And that honest, that seems to be the end of their story. So it was a bunk bed. That's what they believe. Uh-huh. And uh, like the next family to move into the house, like the next April, so like six months later or something, mm-hmm. never had anything. Never heard a peep. Mm. And they only started experiencing shit the day they brought the bunk beds into the house Mm. because that's what i was thinking as well i was like how do they pinpoint it on that yeah but anyway in the unsolved mysteries episode they show this big like bulldozer type vehicle in like a landfill driving over the really shitty bunk beds that they had (laughs) made um and also while i was writing my notes for this i got lots and lots of advertisements for bedroom furniture that is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, no Wayfair. I am not in the market for bunk beds. <laughs> well, but if yeah, you're so going to get bunk beds, get them new because you don't want to run into this shit. Literally, I'm pretty sure I told this story before on here. Like my dad was working for like uh, my dad was also an electrician, but he worked in houses. And this person was like doing up their house and they had like a really good bed that they were just getting rid of. So my dad was like, yeah, I'll take it like and give it to me. Big old fucking, I think it like might have been king size bed. 
And when he brought it home, I was like, I'm not sleeping in that. That's a secondhand bed. No fucking way. I've probably seen this episode of this before. Like, <laughs> and uh, I slept on the floor for like what felt like two or three weeks like before I would actually sleep in the bed. And I was so freaked out. Was everything fine with the bed, though? Everything was fine. Yeah, nothing. I just had it in my head and I was only like 14 or 15. Yeah. But um, yeah. So anyway, that's their story. Like they never experienced anything after that. Uh, even at the time of recording this, it was like only a year after all this had happened. And Debbie said, like, we'll wait and see. She was like, I didn't believe that any of this could happen. So she was just being kind of cautious about saying that they were free of all um, like paranormal activity, basically. But nothing had happened since they left the house. Mm-hmm. And they were thankful for that. Well, they lucked out. Yeah, they really did. They lucked out. And that is another fucking short ass episode. Yay. So next week's probably going to be a little bit longer because I'm hoping it'll be next week. But I have something juicy for you all. I think it's going to be juicy anyway. I don't want to like put too much emphasis on it. But I think it's going to be a good one. (laughs) So yeah, there you go. There's the bunk bed haunting. Right on. Good job. Um, and yeah, we're having like a really fun time doing all this extra Patreon stuff, uh, making silly videos and just shit like that. But actually, I'm in the mi- as of recording this, I'm in the middle of editing a pretty cool episode. We covered the Dear David story mm. on there. So if anybody is interested in checking that out, feel free to go look on our Patreon. And I guess that's it. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you, guys. Don't forget, if you do follow us on iTunes, please rate and review. Um, Apparently, it helps a lot with something. With I don't know. It, cheers also. Ben and me when we read nice reviews. Word. And yeah, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all of the shit. And thank you. All right, guys. Bye. Bye. Where's my baby?